Welcome to Better Business Building, where I'm your host, Adam Menderich, where I talk to business leaders from all shapes of life about what's worked for them and how they can help you win. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Moeen. Welcome. Yeah, pleasure to, to be here. Thank you for uh, inviting me. Yeah. So as with always, because it's always become a thing about my show, we do the micro introductions to give you a chance to now tell us a little bit more about what you do. Um, so w- what I do is, so I currently have a company where we help salespeople basically be the best version of themselves. Um, and, and we do that through a, a range of products and services, but essentially we help salespeople navigate the challenges of being an exceptional salesperson. Under, and, and we do that really by understanding the buyer's behavior. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of neuroscience and behavioral psychology, as well as my 15 years of research with B2B buyers, really unpacking and uncovering, you know, what is it that makes someone buy? What is it that they go through the journey? What do they like and what do they dislike about past sales experiences? And we package that into a form of training programs, consultations, coaching, et cetera, that helps salespeople really work with the biology and the psychology of buyers rather than the conventional sales approach that's out there that really actually goes against biology, right? Mm-hmm. So a, a great example of this is, um, you know, dialing up the fear of missing out, FOMO, mm-hmm. which one of my mentors, Matt Dixon, talks about in his new book, Jolt, The Jolt Effect. Um, and, and at certain points in the way that we make decisions, a big part of that is how do we manage gain? How do we kind of assess gains and losses? And it's those losses that people really reflect on the most because there's the especially in the kind of environment that we're in, the fear of messing up, uh, the fear of doing something wrong and the knock-on effect that that will have overrides the benefits of doing something. Uh, so the whole loss aversion, so omission and commission, et cetera. So we really look at that for salespeople. And the, the point is that we're just taking salespeople to a completely new level. And that's what we do in the business. The business is called Proverbial Door. Yeah, awesome. Well. There is a lot there. Now you're going to have to tell me a little bit further into like, how did you come to this realization and what were the, what were the moving parts? Because you obviously have a varied background to be able to do that. It's, it's a weird story. Yeah. Sorry. Say that again. Yeah. yeah. And to challenge the challenge, the traditional norms um, is a big thing, but tell me what were the stepping stones to get you there? Maybe. It's a weird thing because, um, you know, I don't know if you had this when you were in school, you know, when you were young and they would ask you, you know, what what would you like to be when you grow up? Maybe your parents even asked you that. Mm-hmm. Um, sales, you know, you could have asked me that question a hundred times and, and sales would never have been the answer. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I fell into sales for, for a variety of reasons, but let's just say I fell into sales. Um, I helped close a million pounds plus deal here in the UK with a large education body in the UK. But that wasn't good enough because I had to resign before I was going to get fired from that job. Mm-hmm. And then I, another company heard about the work that I did there. They headhunted me and I was hired. And then a, about a year later, maybe a year and a half, um, the financial recession hit in 2008. Yeah. And, and so things weren't really going well. Um, and there was a moment where I think it was becoming a bit too overwhelming for me. And for some reason, and I remember it was a Saturday morning, I decided, you know what, I'm just going to 
you know, dust off my bookshelf, right? It, it had been left dirty for a while. I wanted to kind of dust it off. And as I was doing that, um, one of the books fell on my head. Like, I mean, it literally fell on my head. It was a heavy book. And I looked down at the book and it was an old textbook that I have uh, on cognitive uh, neuroscience. Mm -hmm. And I looked at that book and I realized, man, that's the answer. Yeah. This is why it's not going well for me because I'm, I've been trained to do something that I didn't really feel comfortable with. And actually, I'd not been trained on anything to do with the buying psychology. You know, yeah. for example, how does someone actually make a decision? And I recall learning about that during my neuroscience degree. So I should have gone back and said, so my degree in university or college for those in America, et cetera, it was in neuroscience. And a big module of that was behavioral neuroscience. Yeah. Um, and I recalled that and I thought, well, hang on a second. Nothing that I've been trained on in sales I'd never been exposed to any of that. No one had talked about the buyer's journey. They they might have talked about the buyer's perspective, but it was always with the lens of making a sale. Yeah. And so I I looked at it and I thought, okay, hang on a second. I'm gonna I'm gonna review and go deep back into those specific areas of the neuroscience degree that I attained. I reread those textbooks, went online, did a ton of research, and I I, I basically created a formula. And I use that formula in my sales role. Now, the first month or two was pretty nerve wracking because I was going against the grain. Mm. But after that, my results shot up. In fact, in, in 2009, I was the top salesperson in that company. So I beat hundreds to go you know, mm. on a five-star trip to, to Mauritius, et cetera, all the great things. And, and I achieved almost 300% of my target. Mm. And, and that was during times that were you know, quite tough as well. And and since then, everything that I've done has been with the buyer's perspective. Yeah. You know, what will make someone buy? How will they view what it is that I'm talking about? What are the other options that they have available to them? What are the risks, right? You know, I try to think about everything as much as possible from the buyer's perspective. And that included interviewing buyers. Yeah. It also included interviewing the equivalent buyer in my own company. So if I was selling to a head of marketing or a head of R&D, I would speak to the head of marketing or R&D in our business yeah. and get an insight into their world and what they're doing. So that's kind of where it came from. And, and then I've just taken that a lot further by the research that I've done by interviewing those buyers, as well as the neuroscience element that I've talked about. So the idea is almost to say, well, what is the biology behind the way that we view our world, the way that we make decisions, the way that we view our in place within that world? Yeah. What are the human needs that overrides the decisions that we make? What are the fears and the biases that actually are part of the process of making those decisions? And how does that then impact the way I need to approach my sales? And, and I found that there were a lot of things that I had to dial down and some that I had to eliminate and some that I had to dial up and kind of just change that perspective. So that's really where it came from. It was really an accident where the book kind of just fell on my head. It was mm -hmm. a serendipitous moment. Mm -hmm. But that moment really changed my life in a massive, massive way. Yeah. Yeah, I can, oh, I can totally agree. And I think that um, what we've even learned in the last 10 years is everyone that adopts a biocentric model wins. Now, an extension question on that for you is what do you say? Because there's still, hang on, let's, let's, how am I going to phrase this? There's still the bro mentality between hardcore sales of 
Mm. No, you need to get better at doing A to B. Um, what do you say to organizations that are still forcing extremely high output because they're only interested in numbers game versus doing a little bit more tactical from a buyer perspective with some of the things and advances that you can do? How do you how do you approach those conversations? Well, well let's let's look at the statistics and the numbers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the output and high level outputs that these companies are talking about, and usually in the form of cold calls. Yeah. Um, you know, less than 1% conversion rate that comes from cold calls. That's not um, a made up number. I mean, that's an official number from extensive level of research amongst all these companies. Mm-hmm. So less than 1% of your cold calls on average, right? I, I, I appreciate yeah. there are others that are against the grain here, um, convert into a first time call. And, and that doesn't even guarantee you a sale because then even, you know, only a certain percentage of those first time calls actually become second base calls and then mm-hmm. move on to a sale. Yeah. So when you're looking at the overall conversion rate, the conversion rate is incredibly low, right? Mm-hmm. And most people look at conversion rate of first time call to a deal. They don't look at conversion rate of attempts to schedule yeah. a meeting and yeah. then get to a sale. If you yeah. look at that, the conversion rates are just appalling. Mm-hmm. And then if you look at how much it costs you for that individual per day, it is a very unprofitable model. So, you know, for all those companies that still insist on that, look, I can show you the numbers, Mm -hmm. but at some point you're going to see that that is an incredibly unprofitable model. In fact, your your customer acquisition cost is just rising. And in the last five years, the customer acquisition cost has gone up by an average of 56%, right? An average of 56%. So it's if if you're if you care about your money, mm. and if you care about the investors' money, right? Who that, that have invested in you, you wouldn't you would not have, uh, take this approach. Yeah. Um, and secondly, I didn't say you should you should lessen your outbound intensity. What I am saying is, if you can maintain it while at the same time yeah. become more targeted towards those clients that genuinely are ones that are good fit for you and what you do and are open to your solution. And actually they're the, you're the best option for them versus all the other options. So really the whole ideal client profile, mm-hmm. and there's no reason why you can't dial up the volume as long as it's targeted. And that is an, an immensely powerful approach. The problem with companies nowadays is they mistake hard work mm-hmm. for better results. But hard, you know, dumb hard work will really will lead to dumb outcomes, right? I'm sorry to use yeah. those kind yeah, of yeah. words, right? Yeah. Right. But but that's the reality of. It. However, if you are much smarter in your approach and who you're targeting and the messaging that you're doing, because mm-hmm. if you don't know who your ideal client profile, then your messaging is not right. Yeah. Because if your messaging is geared to the wrong people, it's the wrong message. Um, so if you want to actually become more profitable, so this whole area of growth at any cost, you know, it's starting to fray now and mm. people are realizing that. So it's not about growth at any cost. It is about smart growth, profitable growth and targeted growth that shows any potential investors or an exit plan, whoever it is you're trying to sell your company to that actually not only are we great at what we do, but we're incredibly smart at how we grow our business. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we might be growing revenue at a lower rate compared to others, but our retention levels are higher. Our cost of customer acquisition is lower, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all of those metrics that make a healthy business yep. starts with that biocentric approach. And and frankly, 
a lot of people talk about biocentricity. I would personally say, and this is my opinion, there are less than less than two percent of companies out there that truly are biocentric. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, you know, taking that approach of just going outbound and just going crazy, and not only that, your your employees, your salespeople are going to become disenfranchised a lot quicker mm-hmm. because it's not meaningful work. One of the highest one of the top reasons why people leave roles is not because of just lack of coaching and things like development it's lack of meaning Mm -hmm. and if you're telling someone to just bash the phone without any intelligence without any direction without any meaning then of course they're going to become disenfranchised so it's not just about your cost of customer acquisition it's your employee value proposition as well that's incredibly important it's also your brand it is very easy for people to understand and learn about your brand and who you are as a business if and your salespeople are the sharpest end where your company touches the marketplace and if that is the brand that you're giving out there Mm. then you've got to ask yourself is that the brand that we stand for and is that the brand that we want to be known for in the community as well so the whole there's a whole raft of reasons as to why and also as a business leader you really don't you want to make your life a lot easier right less stressful yeah. Right. Because if you are constantly on top of your salespeople to bash the phones, throw out thousands of emails with less than one percent conversion rate, that is incredibly stressful for you as a business owner or a business leader. So, again, you know, doing it in, in the right way in terms of a smart approach makes your life a lot less stressful. And in fact, you can put your mind share towards things that maybe you're more excited about as a business leader. And in fact, that's what you envision doing as a business leader, rather than just kind of crouching on top of your salespeople and asking them to keep bashing the phones, keep bashing the phones. Again, I'm not saying there's nothing wrong with Mm. creating intensity in the business. Mm. Yeah, right. You should absolutely have intensity in vision, approach, belief, manner, etc. But point it in the right way. Right. If you if you have a it's, it's like archery, you can have tension in that bow. But if you're pointing it towards someone, mm-hmm. right, or you're pointing it towards a tree rather than the yeah. target, you know, then there's no point how tense that bow is. Right. Mm-hmm. That bowstring is or how perfect your form is. So form without direction is meaningless. It's just it's just show. Mm-hmm. All right. You're speaking that makes my sense. Yeah, you're speaking my language directly. And I absolutely love what you're saying here, because it obviously speaks to a lot of the stuff that we do that I teach people within close circuit selling only to be hyper-targeted. What's their compelling reason? Where do they need to see it? And what would need to make that happen? That's basically as, as simple as what it needs to be. Um, what do you feel, without giving away all your secret sauce, can you give us some of the differences with using some of these adaptations from neuroscience, um, like some examples maybe? So for people that don't have any idea that this stuff exists, what would be maybe two examples of how you could put that into practice? Um, so two examples, uh, let's think. So the first example is um, the neuroscience of decision-making, mm-hmm. right? And yep. there are three major steps. That There are a lot of things involved, but let's take it down to three major steps, right? So you've got the, um, the the calculation and perception of external information. Uh, mm-hmm. Number two is you have a, you know, assessing of assess of gains and losses, and number three is plan implementation. So let's break those down. Mm-hmm. Um, we all know that there's a bunch of information out there. We all know that buyer behavior has changed, and most people cite is because of the, the avail- ready availability of information. There's actually a lot more to that, actually. Um, and people are missing a large chunk of that. But 
when you are when a, when you're buy think about when you buy something yeah. you're calculating and uh, you're calculating the perception of the external information that's available to you so um how how can I, can i trust this brand and what they're saying can mm-hmm. i trust the quality of the product right is does the salespeople ha- have does the salesperson have my best interest at heart right yeah. um you're assessing the validity and the quality of the information that you are being given so already there you've got to think about the language that you're using in any of the communications that you send out there um you want to look at you know is it just via email or am I using a mixture of modalities through video, et cetera? Mm-hmm. Um, because video, for example, makes it very real because you're touching across, uh, touching upon multiple what's called sub-modalities. Mm-hmm. Sub-modalities are essentially you know, visual, auditory, kinesthetic, olfactory, gastral. Um, so uh, you know, I learn and absorb information through reading things, which is visual. Um, auditory will be listening to podcasts or, or, or ebook, sorry, um, uh, audiobooks, etc. Yeah, yeah. um, kinesthetic is experience, so it's a mixture of a few things. But I learn by experiencing it. So the reason why video, for example, is so powerful is because there's auditory, there's visual, and there's kinesthetic. So you're touching across many modalities there. Mm-hmm. So um, you've got to ask yourself, what information am I sending out there? Yeah. And when is it being sent out according to the buyer's journey? And the question then is, okay, if I know what the buyer's journey is, do we have a share of voice in the sources of information that they can access based upon the journey that they're in? And how is my information being perceived in terms of uh, the quality and validity? So that's the first point. Second thing is assessing of gains and losses. Now, this is really important because most people just just talk about gains, 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 ROI, benefits, value proposition. But your buyer is at some point in the sales process, your buyer is going to be more interested in the gain, in the losses, sorry. They, they might be convinced of the gains, but now they're thinking, okay, what could I lose from this? Mm-hmm. What are the risks, right? And, and, and we kind of, we think about the fear-based motivation as well. And so um, that's really important. And the second part to that is most people approach sales in a logical fashion. Problem is we're hugely emotional. Mm-hmm. Um, emotion is in everything that we do, in fact, when you look at the neuroscience behind how someone uh, pursues a goal, there are four main stages, four parts of the brain. The first part and the last part is all about emotion. Yeah. So most people think, okay, gains and losses are things around ROI and risk assessment of logical risk assessment. But the problem is most of it is emotional. Mm-hmm. And so a big part of that is the emotional value, the perception of risk. Oftentimes, the perception is a lot higher than the reality of that risk. Mm-hmm. And so you need to understand what is the percep- perceptive risk that they have here and how do I mitigate that? How do I get it as close to zero as possible? Because we have something called zero-based, ba- zero-risk um, zero bias, where we value something that's at zero more than if we, for example, if you have a risk level three and you drop it down to zero for the buyer, they will value that far more than a risk level of 100 that's dropped down to 50. Even though the the, the, the magnitude of the journey is a lot more, yeah. they prefer that. So again, emotional elements, very important. And then plan implementation. That's the third part. Plan implementation is about how what is the experience and process going to be like for when I work with them? Well, not not exactly for when I work with them, but 
the process from, okay, we're kind of deciding to do this. What's it going to look like now? What's the reality of us working mm -hmm. together going to look like? And this is where, when you provide, you know, visual as well as, you know, written mm -hmm. down in whatever it might yeah. be, yeah. you giving that information in as much detail as possible. So what are the milestones? Who are the people going to be responsible for that? What are the timelines? You know, even in a services-based business, you can show a project timeline. Clarity is really important here because in the absence of information, your brain defaults to the negative towards safety. And there's a balance between over-information versus the right amount of information. Yeah. But already from those three things, you can ask yourself, well, am I actually aligned with how people are making those decisions, mm -hmm. right? What is the level of the quality and the relevance of my information? Do I think about the gains and losses, right? And do I think about emotional gains and losses, not just logical gains and losses? Mm -hmm. And then the final part is, do I make it crystal clear for my buyer what the journey is going to be like in this relationship? Mm -hmm. And am I making it crystal clear how the implementation will work out, how the support will work out? Are we talking about different scenarios of how things may play out and what is our, what is our approach to that? You're really yeah. trying to make the buyer feel comfortable and help them not only just visualize, but experience what it's like, because your brain doesn't actually know what is past versus present when it comes to experience. Mm. If you think about a past trauma, you're reliving it right now. The same can be done for future. If you're talking about a future, uh, you know, a compelling vision, right? Or, or uh, an amazing experience, you can make them feel that right now. Yeah. So that's the first, that's one example. Second example is connected to that, which is the emotional element. Um, we make decisions so there's things called human needs um and people will often violate their values to satisfy a human need um there are various frameworks around human needs such as maslow's hierarchy etc i tend to use tony robbins only because it's very simple uh, and i've yet to see it proven wrong um but but you can use whatever framework you want right um but what you start to notice is that people will make a decision to satisfy a human need, a predominant two human needs. And so understanding what those human needs are is important because if you're talking about an innovative product that's gonna be perceptively high risk to yeah. someone whose human need is all about certainty and stability and safety, then you're, you're talking the wrong language. Yeah. So um, understanding the emotional aspect and the drivers uh, and, the, and the, the drivers of those emotions in a sales process is really important. There was a study conducted by Google, Motist, and CB. They called it personal value, whereas I call it emotional value. And they found that 68% of buyers uh, will pay a higher price. They'll mm. pay a premium for a product where they see personal value. Yeah. 70, I think it was 72% um, of buyers will, will buy a service or buy a product if they see emotional value. You know, emotional value or personal value as they term it has twice the impact of logical value and they found this in the b2b sales environment not a b2c but b2b mm -hmm. and so it's incredibly important that you consider the emotions that they're going through another example would be in the buyer's journey if you look at the buyer's journey one question that people neglect to ask is how does the person feel at each yeah. stage yeah yeah what's going on in their mind what are the things that they're worried about what are they what do they want and what do they fear as well and so that that really puts together it really helps you think in the right way about what message i should be giving them what content i should be giving them because i'm all life is 
quite frankly, broken down very simply into moment by moment state and emotions. That's what life is. You lose money, you feel an emotion. You gain money, you feel an emotion. Your child is born, you feel an emotion. You stub your toe on a on a on a on a chair on a chair or a table, you feel an emotion, right? And, and so, neglecting that is neglecting the very thing that makes us human. Uh, and so, it's really important to include that in the process. So, those are just two examples, but there's a whole raft of examples around from questioning to hypothesis to how you do a product demo, even down to negotiation as well. But uh, but those are two examples. Oh, I love it, mate. I love it. Now, I can personally vouch for two parts of what you said there as a winning formula from what we use in closed circuit selling. So for people that may already know, a big part of when I took an FMCG brand eight times revenue in eight months, all I really did was gave back the feeling of the emotional tie to a product that they hadn't had since childhood. And then I marketed, I figured out who has access to those people. How do I get access to that person? What do they need to see to, to advertise to these five to 5,000 people in one go? That's all I really did. Right. So the emotional aspects of what you said there, oh, exactly 150%. So then all I really needed to do from there is figure out what else are those people missing in their their experiences since childhood, make those products, advertise to those products to give it back to them, and it just spread like wildfire. So 150%. The other thing that I found really interesting that you said there was laying out the buyer's journey. Now, you and I would both know from the corporate world, for some unknown reason since the split out of 2011 onwards, those like buyer journeys and communications plans, and this is what's going to happen at these milestone processes, and this is what you'll expect over here, seems to be gone to the wayside. But I find it incredibly interesting and valuable at the same time. When we bring some of those old school communication plans or milestone maps back, companies that have never seen that before are literally blown away. But all we're really doing is showing what they should expect. So yeah, I found that Amazing from what you said, mate. So um, yeah, 150% there. Um, you've blown me away with a lot of stuff that you have said, obviously. If if there was your, so who who can you help the most and what would that look like? Is it is it individuals? Is it companies? Because a lot of the stuff, the reason that I ask it that way is a lot of the stuff that you're saying, and don't hit me over the knuckles for this, is also what a marketing agency should be measuring how they're making their educational content to hit the buyers within their buying cycle so it could be both am i am i off base there no no you're not off base at all yeah. in fact um i'm often approached by marketing executives yeah. and i have a marketing background although it's just a cim qualification but i've led marketing teams within the kind of commercial sales team um but absolutely i mean marketing should be a people think that sdrs and sales is about demand generation but but actually it's not it's it's mm -hmm. the marketing they're the ones who are best placed to create that demand yeah. and salespeople are best placed to convert that demand and interest into desire action etc yeah. um so no marketing absolutely um it can benefit from this because you you really need to understand mm -hmm. what your buyer state is going to be in right yeah. uh, how they absorb information 
right? Um, am I using a mixture of, of of images or sound, whatever it might be? So no, I, 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 you know, marketing absolutely can benefit from that because again, you're 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 connecting with people at the yeah. end of the day, um, yeah. and it's just a different medium and a different part of the commercial process they're involved, but they're still connecting with people. Yeah. So no, marketing definitely should be involved. Yeah. So who do you think then is your ideal client, and who can you help the most? Do you think? Yeah. So. It's a good question. There are two levels of ideal clients that we work with. Um, let's start with the let's start with the individuals, right? Yeah. The, the yeah. salespeople. Yeah. Um, now, ideal clients is usually salespeople that are about one to three years in their sales experience, and mm -hmm. and one to three years after the SDR role. So they're in yeah. the kind of full blown sales, a mm -hmm. um, you know account managers, whatever it is. Um, so those one to three years are those people that are looking to establish um, a, a really strong process, um, habits, uh, approach, et cetera, whatever you call it. Mm. Um, beyond that, we have different programs, but I wouldn't say they're ideal. I think they're kind of cherry in the icing. So for example, um, I coach someone that would fit with 10 years experience, very, very, um, very talented uh, person. And she, she approached me because her performance was stagnating. The problem wasn't her knowledge. Mm -hmm. The problem was actually her understanding of how people think. So, so I have a very advanced NLP based star program that helps her kind of get into the minds of a buyers, understand and appreciate them a bit more. But the ideal client is one to three years. Um, and then the second ideal client are, you know, they're typically business founders mm -hmm. who um, they're about to scale and start scaling. They have no, they have uh, no idea around sales or a very warped view of sales, mm -hmm. um, and they are trying to create a foundation or an infrastructure for which they can scale their their, their business, mm -hmm. and a lot of that is sales, and most of them are they just don't know where to start, and yeah. I've seen people. In fact, one of my clients, you know, this cost him over a million pounds because he had a chief commercial officer. Uh, who was a co-founder with a stake in the business and that person wasn't the right person for the role it ended up that he had to buy him out of the stake which cost him well over a million um so that can be very costly so those come those founders of businesses are looking for you know how do i create the right infrastructure mm -hmm. that we can now hire salespeople onto and they can flourish so things like uh, the rewards and incentive structure, the onboarding process, even down to how do I interview for these individuals? You know, what do I ask in those interview stages? What do I look out for? And we kind of give them not just the principles, but also the tools and the templates that they can print out and just take to the meeting with them and say, okay, these are the questions I'm going to ask. Um, so those are kind of the two main ideal clients that I work with. Um, Funnily enough, I also work with sales trainers. So some sales trainers want to get to know more about the neuroscience of buying and behavior and, and kind of psychology. And so I work with them, but they're kind of an outlier. So yeah. the, the two ICPs are salespeople that are kind of one to three years, but it doesn't have to exclusively be, but it's one to three years in the sales experience. Mm -hmm. And then those business founders that are on the cusp of scaling their business and they, they want some guidance around how do I create a professional sales infrastructure and function rather than just hire a bunch of people or hire a chief revenue officer and it's just we're just not ready for that person one that's awesome um because that's obviously you can help a lot, a lot of people obviously um with the one to three years do ad hoc question do do you find that they are coming to you individually or is that through their management structure going hang on we could actually use a lot of this good stuff 
both okay both yeah. um yeah. traditionally it was through the management structure mm. from through their leaders yeah. um we've now we're now in the process of putting programs together where we're able to market that to salespeople individually um and bring them onto a program um but i i do get asked because i'm very active on linkedin i do yeah. get approached yeah, yeah. by yeah. individual sales performers and I love it when they do that because you can tell that these people are probably going to be high performers just by the the the, the nature of how they approach things. Uh, but they will approach me and say, you know, I loved what you've written on here. I'm struggling with that same issue. Can we talk about how you can kind of coach me and help me in that process? Yeah. And so we will do that. Um, yeah. But initially, yeah, but it's both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly why I asked that question because I guess um, if anything that we've been taught since 2020 is now the individual performers are borderless. So if they want to seek help for the right things, they might even individually do that off their own bat, whereas before they wouldn't. So that's why I asked that question. So that's that's amazing. Um, mm. If Sorry, if, do you have any tips for people that are stuck right now that have loved what you've said um, to maybe implement some of the things to get them out of the churn of just doing high volume numbers game? Or any further tips for the listeners? Yeah, it's hard because it depends on where you are in the situation, yeah, yeah. right? Um, you know, when we talked about, you know, high volume calling, sometimes it's there's such high pressure from your boss and from yeah. the investors, et cetera. Very hard to kind of push against that, um, mm -hmm. especially if you're not experienced. Um, here's the, the tip that I would ask. The main tip that I've given, it really doesn't matter where you are in the sales process, is... So the first thing I would say is if you're selling to a specific profile, right, whether that's a chief marketing officer, head of sales, head of whatever it is, head of HR, the first tip that I would ask you to do is go out and find the MBOs that that role requires. And what I mean by MBOs are management by objectives. Mm -hmm. um, think of this as the, 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 the main things that they're going to be evaluated on in their performance review. So, you know, those performance reviews that you yeah, get yeah. every half year or every year. And they'll say, right, these are the things that we want you to achieve. And by you achieving that, that will determine whether you get your bonus and whether you get a promotion, all the good things. Yeah. Precious few salespeople know exactly what that is for the people that they that they sell to. And if you don't know that, then you're unable to align the value of what you do to what they really care about, which is their career. Mm. Right. Um from interviewing 428 buyers across 10 different industries, nine different functional areas, one of the biggest surprises for me was how important uh, career protection and advancement was such a big portion of their calculation on whether they will work with this vendor or salesperson or not. Mm -hmm. And so the major, and when we talked about ROI and things like that, when I really dug it in with them, they said, well, look, I trusted my career in this person's hand, yeah. hands or, the, or this, this, this supplier's hands. And so if you don't, so what you can do is very quickly try to identify what those MBOs are. And here's a simple way of doing it. Go onto job sites and look at similar mm -hmm. roles and what the employer is asking for. That will give you a very good insight into that. So start with understanding the world of the buyer through the MBOs. The other thing I would say is if you sell to a job title that you have in your company, go and ask that person about their world, about their what their work is, what they're going through, how do they think about certain suppliers, what is the decision? You have a wealth of insights mm. from someone in your business yep. who is 
you know, they're going to be incentivized to share that with you. It's in their best interest to share that with you. They're not going to hide those things from you, right? Yeah. Um, and so if you sell to a head of HR, go and speak to your head of HR. Mm. Get to understand what's going on through their world. You don't have to go into the psychology necessarily. Yeah. You can just do the basics, which is just understanding their world. And so when you talk to them, you will get a really good sense of what they're about, what the language should be, how do they make those decisions, what do they value? Things like, for example, you know, when you talk about HR, um, you know, when they're given budget, is it an easy thing for them to get budget or not? Mm. Right? Normally in HR, it isn't. In fact, you, you know, you, you don't get as much budget as other as other functions do. Right? Now, why is that, and what does that make the H the RA head of HR feel like? How does it make them feel? And what does that mean to the way that they spend their money? And what does that mean to their career? So, you know, those are, I mean, there are so many things I could say, but those are the top two things that I would highly recommend salespeople do to get into, to start on that buyer-centric journey. Start by appreciating and, because people just want to feel understood. They want to feel recognized and understood and in control. And so if you can do those two out of those three, you're well on the way to starting to understand and uh, the buyer's world and becoming more buyer-centric in your approach. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Now, if the listeners have loved it just as much as what I have, Moed, where can we? Where can they get in contact with you? Yeah, um, so a couple of places that they can learn. Well, yeah, three places they can learn about me. Um, you can go to my website, uh, proverbialdoor, all one word, dot com. Um, I'm very active on LinkedIn. So forward slash Moed Amin. I, I don't think there's anyone else with my name, but if it is, usually that's the, I'm the first person that comes up and you can see all my work there. You can, you can register into the newsletter. You can even look at some of our programs. Um, you can also find a ton of videos that we publish on YouTube. Um, we have our podcast as well, but on YouTube at proverbial door, you'll see a bunch of videos of interviews that I've done with experts. We're just about to publish a series of videos where I give, um, some of these kind of advice. You will also see a, a number of videos with a partner of mine, Ted Wayman, where we analyze companies, the financial statements of famous companies to help people build their business acumen because mm -hmm. finance is the language of business. And so if you can't understand that language, then you can't really do business very well. And yeah. so we we teach salespeople how to read those financial statements. And we do that by analyzing the statements of famous well-known companies like you know, Tesla, Google, Microsoft, you know, you name it across different industries. Mm -hmm. So those are kind of the three main places that you can learn more about me and get in contact. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and teaching us about your angles of neuroscience and how you can help people astronomically well. Um, thank you so much, man. My my pleasure. Thanks for having you on. I really liked the questions. It was a very comfortable session, I have to say. Thanks, mate. I appreciate it. Cheers, mate. Thanks for listening. If you, like me, have received great value from my guest, please like, share and follow. See you next time.